Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. respect I think I mean Putin identifies himself with Russia and it's all about respect for Putin and respect for Russia and I think this is again his you know his narrative of the past 25 years would be Russia during the 1990s under Yeltsin was weak we were kicked about uh, by the West, we were taken advantage of by the West, they expanded NATO up to our borders, they ripped us off economically, all that, all that, that kind of thing. And I think he was acutely aware of the way that Yeltsin was, you know, was, was mocked for, abroad for his, his drunkenness and all this kind of stuff. So then Putin is very much you know, the anti-Yeltsin in that way, and certainly the anti-Gorbachev. He, his whole image, uh, particularly again in, this, in, in his most recent term since 2012, has been built on him as a, as a strong, powerful, kind of muscular leader. And, you know, quite literally, there were those sort of extraordinary photographs that one, one saw around a few years ago of, of, of a topless Putin on horseback or Putin diving into the sea and, and miraculously coming up with a couple of ancient Grecian urns, all this kind of macho stuff, hunting wild animals. It's, it's all about strong leader, strong country. And that, you know, that transforms itself also into, into policy. So we see that in, in when he intervened in Ukraine or seized, annexed, illegally annexed Crimea, sent his forces into eastern Ukraine. It was to send a signal saying, we're Russia, we're not going to put up with this kind of stuff. And then even more so in Syria, when he, he muscled his way in to show that he, Putin, and Russia are now a force again in the Middle East. No great and enduring change in the spirit and practice of government in Russia will ever come about primarily through foreign inspiration or advice. To be genuine, to be enduring, and to be worth the hopeful welcome of other peoples, such a change would have to flow from the initiatives and efforts of the Russian people themselves. The prescient words of American diplomat and historian George Kennan in a telegraph from Moscow to Washington in 1946. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How has Russia changed over the past 25 years? And will Russian foreign policy always be a zero-sum game? So asked Peter Conradi in his revealing new book, Who Lost Russia? How the World Entered a New Cold War, published by One World. In Who Lost Russia? Peter Conradi writes, Putin's intervention in Syria, which followed his defiant seizure of the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine in March 2014, underlined just how much had changed in the quarter of a century since the newly independent Russian Federation emerged from the wreck of the Soviet Union on the 31st of December 1991. Putin's message to the world was clear. Russia was back. So has the Cold War really ended? And will Russia always rattle nerves? Hello, my name is Peter Conradi. I'm the foreign editor of the Sunday Times in London. Uh, I'm also the author of Who Lost Russia? How the World Entered a New Cold War, uh, my book which has just come out. 
this draws on my experiences, not just as foreign editor, but also an earlier life when I was the Moscow correspondent uh, from 1988 to 1995, uh, during which time I watched the Soviet Union fall apart, the end of communism, the end of the Cold War. Um, in the meantime, I've been in a, a whole number of different places, written several other books, uh, but Russia has always been a fascination for me, and it's somewhere that is getting more and more fascinating, I think, with each day that passes. Really well done on the book, Peter. It's such a, an expansive and informative read. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off with. I'm sure we can take it from there. Do you think the world, whether it's political leaders, international institutions, international security specialists, whatever it is, do you think the world has got the measure of Putin? It's interesting, isn't it? Because Putin has been there for a long time now. He came into power at the beginning of 2000. So as far as world leaders are concerned, he's one of the, he's one of the longest lasting. But he has really changed uh, during this, this, this time that he's, that he's been in power. And I think we, we forget that today, because if you, if you look back at um, 2000, when he took over from Boris Yeltsin, he was very much seen as a breath of fresh air. He was relatively young. He seemed relatively liberal, strange as it seems now. Uh, a lot of people were keen to make friends with him, something I go into in, in, in the book, and maybe we can talk about it more later. But Tony Blair was one one of the first people to, to, to champion him, Silvio Berlusconi, also George Bush, when he first met him, uh, went away with a very, very good impression of him. And, you know, the real Putin is, it, it's difficult to say, is it the, the real Putin has emerged over the past 16 years or has he actually been changed by office, just as he has changed the office itself? The title of your book, Who Lost Russia, is rather provocative and it brings up so many different aspects of international and political history. I'm just wondering, could it be argued that the Cold War is what was never over, that it's still going on in all sorts of different ways and that really whether we look at Russia as being lost or not, it has always been a superpower and always has seen itself as a superpower? Yeah, I suppose, I mean, I should explain that the, the title itself is, is a play on something that might be familiar to some of your listeners, which was in, in America in the 1950s. There was a lot of discussion about who lost China after the nationalists who America was backing were defeated by Mao. So my, my attempt in, in this book is to draw a parallel between that and Russia in the early 1990s. I mean, if we, if we take the time... You know, if we go back in time, we go back to 1991, the Soviet Union broke up, communism had ended, um, the, uh, the Cold War was also over, it had been over for a couple of years. And, you know, there was a sense in which, um, you know, they were now, now, they were now on our side. You know, we were now all going to be one kind of happy world together. There was this famous book by Francis Fukuyama, uh, the, the American writer who wrote about the end of history. You know, we were all going to be going off onto this sort of pursuit of kind of liberal democracy. Everything was going to be fine. And I think my book, I try to tell the story of the last 25 years to contrast the, the, the promise and the optimism that existed, not just in Russia, but in, in, in the West as well, in the early 90s, with the situation today when, yes, we do appear to be in a, in a new Cold War. It's, it's, it's very different from the last Cold War for lots of reasons, but, you know, it's, it's certainly nothing like that optimistic atmosphere we had in the early 1990s. Do you think the problems between the West and Russia comes down simply to misunderstanding? Because one of the themes that you really explore in the book is that whether it's the West or America, that they have failed to see 
how Russia sees itself and how Russia has failed possibly in ways to to really communicate who who and what it wants to be. Yeah, I think you're you're, you're absolutely absolutely right. I mean, after after the end of the, the, the Soviet Empire, let's, let's call it that in the sort of the broadest sense, there were a number of challenges. There were a number of new independent countries, you know, places like Poland, Hungary, and also other countries that were part of the former Soviet Union, Estonia, Ukraine, uh, Georgia, and so on. And as far as those countries were concerned, it was relatively easy to know what to do with them. You know, there, there was a sense in which these countries had been separated from the rest of Europe by the Iron Curtain, and that now they would be reintegrated into Europe. So, you know, we see that to some extent, these countries have become model European citizens, they're all in the EU, they're in, in NATO, you know, that sort of worked out fine with a few, you know, a few little wrinkles perhaps along the way. Russia was always a different problem, I think, just because of the size of the country, because of its enormous military might, and also because of its, if, if its imperial past, its sense of being a great power, its sense of being an important country. And what we had that during the 1990s, Russia was very, very weak economically because they dismantled the old communist system and it took a long time to put a sort of a rather chaotic at the beginning form of capitalism in its place. And for a long time, I think we, we just assumed, well, Russia will just tag along with all the other countries just behind America, kind of doing what America says and so on. And they did do that for the first few years, but that was not really out of, a, out of a particular desire. It was out of economic weakness. And when they'd sort of sorted themselves out towards the end of the 1990s, Putin came in and took over from Yeltsin. The oil price started to go up. The economy started to, um, to get more into shape. And suddenly, surprise, surprise, Russia found that it didn't like being pushed around. It didn't want to be the, the obedient follower of America and started to assert itself. And that, that essentially is what's been happening over those last 17 years since Putin came to power. You pitch up an extraordinary interesting question, Peter. You, you ask, what role did the West expect Russia to play? And it's, you know, as we look at the different directions history has taken, it's very, very hard to predict it all, wasn't it? Well, I think it was. I mean, I think that just gets back to the, the point that I just made, that we, we sort of thought it was kind of settled, uh, I think, in the 1990s. It was, it was a very turbulent period. If, uh, I mean, I, I lived in Russia until 1995, so I, I saw a lot of this firsthand. It was very, very chaotic politically. It was very, very chaotic economically. But I think there was the feeling the Russians are going to take a bit of time to sort themselves out, but that eventually, you know, there'll be a, 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 a liberal democracy just like the Poles are or just like the Czechs are and so on, and everything will be sort of settled. Um, and there was, I think, just this gradual realization that, no, they weren't. You know, they, they weren't going to be like that. And that there was this old Russia, this Russia beneath the surface, um, not just Soviet Russia, but kind of imperial Russia that was kind of reasserting itself. You write very atmospherically at the start about bringing in your contraband, your, your classy wine in, in your car into Russia at the time when you travelled over there first to correspond. And you describe the euphoria and that sense of optimism then. And then you describe the collective sense of resignation, grievance and wounded national pride. I take exception with the contraband uh, description. <laughs> um, having having an, an Italian wife, one of the first questions that she asked me before we went to, to Russia 
was, uh, will there be any Italian wine there? And I, I couldn't guarantee that. So we managed, we had quite a large Volvo estate car at the time, and we somehow managed to fit 100 bottles of wine um, sort of dotted around in the interior of it. So I thought it was a little bit contraband. Uh, but it was, it, was a, it was a weird, it was a very, very weird place uh, the end of the 80s. I went there in 1988, uh, the end of the 80s and in the early 90s, because the, <clears throat> the old system was breaking down and uh, the new system hadn't yet come in place. So it was, I mean, at the time one would go into a normal Russian shop and it would be literally empty. There would be nothing there. You'd, you'd, you'd look at the shelves and they would be empty shelves. And it was, it was kind of extraordinary. And it was the, that was the real breakdown of the whole Soviet economic system, which was completely falling apart. And then Gorbachev was, was pushed out at, um, at the end of 1991, and Boris Yeltsin came in and instituted some very, very radical economic reforms. So one went from a sort of a rather curious situation where people had money but nothing to spend it on to shops which eventually began to fill up with products, but people didn't really have much money to spend. So it was, it was a very painful transition that the whole country went through in the early 1990s as they kind of introduced so-called shock therapy and kind of Western-style economic reforms. And some of the people that, that we know today as, as, as the Russian oligarchs, they were essentially, in most cases, people who were very, very smart, who could see the way that uh, the wind was blowing and um, started out doing sort of small-scale trading or import-export kind of businesses and so on. Other ones just managed to get their hands on all sorts of uh, government resources or natural resources, oil, gas, and so on, and privatized them in a fairly dubious way. So what you got basically during the course of the 1990s is a relatively small number of people getting very, very rich, and the mass of the population really, really suffering. And it was really quite heart-rending stuff to, to, to witness. Did you meet Boris Yeltsin at any stage? I met, I met him in, in sort of public fora. Um, I never had the opportunity, unfortunately, to sit down and do a sort of a one-to-one -one interview with him. But, he, I mean, he was, he was an, an extraordinary character. Uh, unpredictable. I mean, completely unpredictable. Very fond, obviously, of, of, of drink. Um, there's some wonderful, uh, there's wonderful footage these days, thankfully, one can see on, on YouTube of him. Uh, one famous occasion, I think it was in Germany, conducting, drunkenly conducting an orchestra at some kind of an event. Um, on another occasion, I think when, it was, when he was flying to Ireland, he didn't come out of the plane. Um, there was a kind of a, a reception waiting for him, and uh, he, it finally it was announced that he was, he was uh, too sick to come out. And he was also actually in perhaps not entirely unconnected with the drinking, uh, in pretty poor health towards, towards the end of his, his time in office uh, with you know, heart surgery and all this kind of thing. But he was, he was, a, he was a, an, an enormously powerful figure. He was a product of the communist system himself, but he set himself the task, essentially, of destroying it. You know, he was like a huge battering ram. He smashed what remained of the rest of the Soviet system. And laid the foundations, I suppose, for the, for the new Russia, but both in the positive sense and in the negative sense. But how responsible was he, Peter, for, you know, the kind of institutionalised corruption that we see today in Russia, that greed and opportunism that we see? Because effectively his choice of, uh, of Putin as, uh, as his replacement settled him from um, unity um, and uh, prosecution for some of the dirty dealings that he was doing. He certainly lined his pockets and got away with it. 
He did. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, what can one say? I mean, Russia in the 1990s was a hugely unfair place. Um, because there were, there, were, there were two processes that were going on, and I think one can separate them out and say one of them was essentially positive and one of them was essentially negative. The positive one was that they dismantled the old system of central planning, which existed during the communist days, which was basically the idea that the state would control everything, you know, would control industry, all the, the means of production and exchange, as he put it in sort of Marxist jargon, and the state would decide how many shoes to produce each year, how many cars to produce each year, and so on, which was a hugely inefficient way of, of, of running things. And, you know, the reformers, Yeltsin brought in a lot of sort of young reformers, and they got rid of that, and they replaced it with a you know, a Western-style economy where industry is privately owned, where people, you know, uh, manufacturers respond to price signals, and, you know, this kind of thing, a normal kind of functioning Western economy. Simultaneously, though, there was the question of how do you transfer all these assets which the state held into private hands? Now, they went for a sort of a system of, of privatization, um, of the sort that, uh, you know, was, I suppose was pioneered in Britain by, by Margaret Thatcher. But time, you know, a multiple of a hundred times, they were essentially privatizing the whole economy. And the way that that was done was hugely, hugely unfair. Lots of the auctions at which they sold off um, the property were, were rigged largely on behalf of the, the kind of the Soviet-era managers who were running the particular firms. So as a result of that, you just got hugely, hugely unfair distribution of wealth. And then with that came all sorts of corruption. There, yes, there were an awful lot of, of corrupt cronies, one can put it, around Yeltsin. And then when Yeltsin himself um, stepped down and you know, handed over the presidency effectively to Putin, one by one, these cronies were got rid of by Putin and new cronies, surprise, surprise, um, were installed by him. You sprinkled some lovely interviews throughout uh, the book. One of them was with uh, veteran poster Alexander Olson. He had some magical stories for you, some of them very entertaining. But he described the transition in 1992 as almost going to planet Mars. And you quote him saying, we did not need a spaceship to fly to Mars. We could take a plane and arrive to the US. It's, it's almost next to impossible to conceive the changes that Russia went through in the first 10 years, isn't it? Because they were not just a country that had very different strategies strategic goals, but such different cultural mindsets as well. Yes, I mean, it, 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 because it was so isolated, because it was so difficult to, to, to leave the country and to go abroad. I mean, certain people had the right to leave the country, certain kind of intellectuals or, you know, artists from the Bolshoi Ballet or whatever, you know, but as, as you may remember, you know, lots of them left to go on tour and not all of them always came back, you know, and the same also with um, sort of sports stars and so on. You know, but for the majority of ordinary Soviet citizens, the West was this completely alien place and there were, there were kind of two, they, they got kind of, I suppose, two contradictory pictures of it. One picture of it was the picture that they got through the official Soviet media, which was of a terrible
terrible place run by um, kind of robber baron capitalists in stovepipe hats out of the you know Victorian era. Terribly unfair. I mean, it was always entertaining. I, I caught the end of it when I was uh, based in Moscow, but to watch their reports of events in America, it would always focus on, you know, queues for food stamps or appalling poverty and, and this kind of thing. So there was the this kind of propaganda image of the West that was that was fed to Russians, both through the TV, through newspapers, and so on. But at the same time, they didn't really believe it, because um, it was pretty clunky and it was pretty ineffective. And so they were getting a different kind of view of the West, and, you know, which was perhaps through pop music or perhaps through little bits of uh, popular culture that was smuggled into the country. Obviously, it was long, long pre-internet and so on. And so, but they... I think, got a very rosy view of the West, unnaturally rosy view of the West. So when all the, the, the barriers came down with the, the falling of the Berlin Wall and then finally the breakup of the Soviet Union and freedom to travel and so on, it was a bit of a, a shock because the West was different from how they'd been told it was, but it was different both in a positive way and in a negative way. And when those kind of Western practices were imported into Russia, um, you know, it wasn't entirely as uh, great as some of them thought it was going to be. How instrumental was Jeffrey Sachs in the rebuilding of Russia? I know you, you, you quote him saying that, you know, he saw his mission as a, had a sense of almost moral rightness to it. And that there was different estimations on how much it would cost to rebuild Russia. And you were looking at anything up to 30 billion. It was a mammoth task. So I'm wondering... Was it also there was inevitability that it would end in uh, organised crime and corruption? You know, because there were so many things that had to be tackled. Yes, I mean Jeffrey Sachs is is, is an interesting an interesting character, um, very 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 influential figure. I think he'd done he'd done as an economist he'd done work in 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 Latin America, and then before you know, in, in basically kind of sorting out their economies or putting, helping put their economies onto a market footing. And he then went on to work in Poland. Uh, obviously, in, in, in Poland, the, the, the move to capitalism came a couple of years earlier than it did in, in, in the Soviet Union. And he'd had great success in Poland. But then the Polish economy was much, much smaller than the, the Soviet economy. It was much more straightforward. And also, it had only been communist for the last 40 years, whereas... Um, the Soviet economy was huge, um, very complicated. There was no real tradition of capitalism, or were, let's say there was no one alive still who'd been active in a kind of a, a, an economy run along capitalist lines. There was a further complication because the Soviet Union was, was splitting up and the whole Soviet economy had been structured as if it was one big country. So suddenly you would find um, a manufacturer, perhaps of aircraft, and the wings would be made in Ukraine, say, the engines would be made in Russia, uh, some other bits and pieces would be made in Belarus, and then perhaps the tires would come from Kazakhstan. So they had to cope with that as well. And it was, uh, you know, it was an enormous task, um, Sachs himself wasn't there for very long, um, and he got quite frustrated um, with the sort of the what he encountered in in in, in Russia. I mean, quite understandably. Um, but as I said, it, it does get back to these sort of two processes: one of actually moving to a market economy, and the other one actually redistributing the spoils. And uh, these were very very separate things. And it was this sort of redistribution of the spoils that I think gave. 
the whole transformation such a such a bad name among a lot of ordinary Russians because the wealthy Russians, the sort of the Novi Ruski, the new Russians as they became known, the, the young businessmen, and it was almost always men in their sort of early 20s often, would be driving around in these top-of-the-range Mercedeses and really splashing the cash and really showing off, um, you know, and driving past rows of babushki old ladies just sort of selling shoes or household possessions just to uh, make ends meet. What did you make of Gorbachev? You were there, you were, you were working as a reporter there during his term. And I, you write somewhere that his, his motives are open to dispute. So what, what, what did you make of him and how much of a realist was he? I think, I mean, Gorbachev is, is, is an interesting figure because he's uh, very, very widely hailed for doing something that actually he didn't set out to do in the first place. It's a you know, great sort of historical irony. I mean, he came to power in 1985 with the aim of making socialism work. He wanted to, I think he realized that the system was, was, was grinding to a halt. He could see um, quite how bad it was economically. He could see that it was sort of falling behind, that coercion as a, as a means of keeping people under control wasn't really working anymore. So he set out to try and um, reform socialism. It was a kind of a, another attempt to what was tried by Dubček in Czechoslovakia in 1968, a kind of socialism with a, with a human face. Um, a lot of the people around Gorbachev were that kind of era, the kind of people who'd spent their formative years in 1968, who'd seen what was going on and had been secretly quite optimistic that the same thing could happen in the Soviet Union. So he set out to make, uh, make socialism in the Soviet Union work better. But I think it was, it was a little bit like someone who, who, who buys, a, buys a house and uh, they decide to, to renovate it. And they think, well, we'll just sort of uh, maybe take off the wallpaper and paint the walls. And then they start to take off the wallpaper and they find that as the wallpaper comes off, bits of plaster come off. And then they think, okay, well, uh, let's take the plaster off as well. And then bits of the support of the house come off with it. And before they know what's happened, the whole house is, is sort of perilously balanced on a few a few bricks and, and about to fall down. And I, I think that's what, you know, that, that was Gorbachev's tragedy, um, that it was just a much, much bigger task than he envisaged when he set out. Plus, the more he did, the more freedoms. I mean, he, let's say he wanted to give people relatively limited freedoms. He wanted to have free elections, but he wanted or expected that when there was a free election, people would all vote for the communists out of gratitude to him. And he, he, he sadly found that these forces that he'd unleashed um, were kind of overtaking him. And it was the, I, I arrived in 1988, and from then on, this real story was him losing control of what he'd started. But do you think it could be argued that Yeltsin squandered his legacy? And to use your uh, superb analogy of the house, that possibly Yeltsin took a bulldozer, not just to the kitchen and the drawing room and the dining room, etc., but to the very foundations. He, he, he did indeed. And, um, but that was, that was a deliberate policy by Yeltsin, because Yeltsin, despite the fact that he had made his career in the Soviet Union. He was, you know, people forget that he was a loyal Communist Party official, um, but that he fell out very badly with Gorbachev, 
Um, Gorbachev absolutely hated him. Gorbachev had him thrown out of the Politburo, which was the, sort of the ruling uh, body during the Soviet years. And it, it, it really it, it sort of turned into a kind of a grudge match between, between the two men in the late 1980s. So Yeltsin effectively won. He, he got rid of Gorbachev. He, he supplanted him. He became leader of, a, of the independent Russia. And he also set out completely to destroy communism, to prevent any attempt by the communists to come back into power. And that was the whole leitmotif, as it were, of the 1990s, was making sure that Russia's move away from communism was irreversible. And as far as Yeltsin was concerned, if that meant knocking stuff down, then he was going to knock it down. How much of an idealist do you think was Bill Clinton when it came to Russia? You have some smashing stories of um, a diplomatic trip that Bill Clinton made to Vancouver when Yeltsin was knocking back the booze and he had different um, security services on both sides watching how much he was drinking. It's a it's a super story. But I'm just wondering, do you think Clinton was a bit idealistic? I don't know. I mean, just you mentioned Vancouver. It, 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 it was a terrific story because this was this was the first summit meeting between the two men. And um, as I put in the book, they went out, they decided, as, as happens on these events, to go out on a boat ride and they went around Vancouver Island. And Yeltsin apparently downed three scotches within a few minutes of leaving the dock. And then at dinner, he had four glasses of wine, barely had anything to eat. His speech was becoming increasingly slurred. And Warren Christopher, the Secretary of State, passed one of his colleagues a note which said, quote, no food, bad sign, boat ride was liquid. Now, Clinton was uh, sort of relaxed about all of this. Um, he had a, an alcoholic stepfather, and, you know, he said, to, he said to Warren Christopher, I've seen a little of this problem in my time. At least Yeltsin's not a mean drunk. Um, but, you know, he got, to, he got to really like Yeltsin and he got to spend an awful lot of time with him because, because of the way the, uh, the American and the, the Russian electoral calendars kind of coincided. He basically, there were seven years when the two of them were running their respective countries. There were loads and loads of meetings between them. And I don't know if, if one could describe Clinton as being idealistic or not, but I think he fully supported Yeltsin in Yeltsin's central aim of preventing the return of communism. So basically the whole American policy during the 1990s was we will stand beside or behind Yeltsin through thick and thin, and whatever Yeltsin does, we'll be, we'll be happy with it, we'll support it, because without Yeltsin, there's going to be chaos. Now, whether that was a good policy in retrospect um, is, is, is quite a moot point because there are occasions when Yeltsin did behave in a pretty appalling way. There was a, an extraordinary standoff between Yeltsin and the Russian parliament in 1993 when tanks were deployed. A lot of people died. Um, the Americans stood firmly behind Yeltsin. Um, but you, one could say in those kind of actions and in the support for those kind of actions, the foundations were laid for the future drift to auto autocracy that we've seen under Putin. Can we talk about Putin's rise to power? You write, if Washington initially struggled to get the measure of Putin, it was understandable. His path to the Kremlin has been extraordinary, both for its speed and its unexpectedness. It's almost Shakespearean, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, the, the, there was a, an expression that was, that was used about Stalin um, and his sort of rise to power under Lenin, which he was the sort of a man that, that rose without trace. Um, one could say the same thing from, for, about Putin. I mean, he was, 
he was a relatively lowly official in the in, in the KGB in the in the late 1980s. He was sort of deployed in in, in Germany in East Germany. Uh, not a very important job. He came back to St. Petersburg. He caught the eye of uh, a guy called Anatoly Subchak, who was the the mayor of St. Petersburg and was actually a very liberal figure, one of the sort of one of the good guys, as it were. And you know, thanks to his patronage, Putin rose up through the system, um, eventually going on to head the KGB. And then in, in summer of 1999, Yeltsin appointed him prime minister. Now, prime minister in the, in, in the Russian system is very much sort of subordinate to the president. And Yeltsin had got through an awful lot of prime ministers um, during, his, during his time in office. Uh, Putin was probably the fifth, sixth or so prime minister. So it wasn't immediately clear how important he was going to be. But then almost immediately he'd been uh, appointed. Putin also said, I'd like to see this man as my successor. And then literally four months later, Yeltsin stepped down from the presidency prematurely. He had another six months to go. He stepped down. He said, I'm going to bring in Vladimir Putin as the acting president. And I'm going to bring forward elections by three months to March. And, um, you know, I would like you to support him. So suddenly, Putin had been catapulted into the top job. You're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with Peter Conradi, the foreign editor of the Sunday Times, whose books include The Red Ripper, Inside the Mind of Russia's Most Brutal Serial Killer, Hitler's Piano Player, The King's Speech, and his latest offering, Who Lost Russia? How the World Entered a New Cold War, published by One World. I asked Peter what the average Russian makes of Putin's defence of traditional values. His disdain of homosexuality, treatment of pussy right, not to mention his tight control of Russian media. Putin himself has, has changed, and I mean, I, I'm not the only one, I think, to be a little bit sceptical about the extent to which he really believes 
in all that stuff. I mean, if one looks at, you know, Putin's time in office, when he first came into power in 2000, he was very, very fortunate because the oil price, which is a real key thing for Russia, which is very, very dependent on oil exports, the oil price, which had been around $20 a barrel for the preceding few years, started going up and up and up. You know, a few years later, it was through $60. By 2008, it peaked at $140. So you think of all that money that was sloshing into the Russian coffers, which meant that in, in, in his first two terms in office, Putin really built his legitimacy on rising living standards. I mean, this was really kind of a, a golden period for ordinary Russians. They had the money to, um, to go on foreign holidays, to buy Western computer, consumer goods, to buy computers, smartphones, all that kind of stuff. That changed a little bit later. Um, Putin sort of stepped aside in, in theory for four years because he wasn't allowed to run for a third term as president. So he did a kind of a rather curious job swap with Dmitry Medvedev, who had been the prime minister and who became the president. Uh, and then when Putin came back in 2012, the economy wasn't going quite so well. And he, was, it, he seemed to have been kind of casting around for a new source of legitimacy. And it was about that time he started evoking again these traditional Russian values. And people like Pussy Riot got caught up in it. Um, they, they were part of a sort of a protest movement which had accompanied uh, Putin's re-election in 2012 because there were a lot of people who were very, very unhappy at the idea that he was coming back again, which looked like a kind of a step backwards. Lots of protests. There were, there were Pussy Riot who... They, Who's, who'd been doing a lot of performances, quite kind of provocative performances. You know, their aim was to upset people and to provoke people and so on, which is, you know, in a, in a free society is absolutely fine. They went a little bit too far by uh, organizing a pr recording a video in, in a church, which um, was pretty, seen by some people as pretty sacrilegious. They got arrested and got punished pretty severely. But that was... Bizarrely, that was probably went down quite well with the majority of Russian people, certainly a majority of Russian backers of, of, of Putin. I was um, intrigued to read about his trip to Mount Athos in Greece uh, last year, and I hadn't realised that he had read a lot of different um, classic texts from Christian writers. He's such a contradictory character, because then when we look at his intervention in Syria, we look at the Ukraine and his treatment of minorities, in both in Russia and within its borders. It is, uh, it's so shocking, isn't it? It is. I mean... Uh... I'm sure I'm, you're I'm, not surprised by that, are you, Peter? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that surprised. I mean, I think, you know, if you want to understand Putin, it's all, about, it's all about respect, I think. I mean, Putin identifies himself with Russia, and it's all about respect for Putin and respect for Russia. And I think this is, again, his, you know, his narrative of the past 25 years would be Russia during the 1990s under Yeltsin was weak. We were kicked about uh, by the West. We were taken advantage of by the West. They expanded NATO up to our borders. They ripped us off economically, all that, all that, that kind of thing. And I think he was acutely aware of the way that Yeltsin was, you know, was, was mocked. 